0: The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tcherrydale.com. If you have your Bibles and would turn them to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in uh, verse number 1. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse one so this morning we're going to to ponder a bit the the theme of Jesus is is here Jesus is here and over the course of the next month or so uh, we're going to start what will be a fairly long series in the Gospel of Luke that we're going to to move back and forth between the Gospel of Luke and some various series that uh, that we're going to intersperse in the midst of our study of the Gospel of Luke, and and so to to that end, we have first of all for you uh, this CSB Scripture uh, notebook. These are around the auditorium. If they've all been uh, taken up, we're going to order. Uh, A few more uh, for you to aid you in your study of the Gospel of Luke as we move along over the next year or so. And then, especially for our Advent season, we have this uh, set of cards that uh, my very lovely and talented wife has uh, put together for us that, that, that really could be used by someone of any age. Uh, whether you could read or not read, uh, this, these cards can be used day by day throughout the 24, 25 days of Advent to focus on this reality that Jesus is Christmas. Jesus is Christmas. And there are four themes that are going to be uh, outlined in our sermon series that are going to coincide with these cards And the first is Jesus is here. And then we're going to talk about Jesus is God, Jesus is Lord, and finally Jesus is King. And on the back of these there will be guides for uh, how to to, to read a particular passage, some passages to reflect upon. There's some memory verses uh, along the way. It is filled with great, beautiful illustrations and awesome studies of the scripture uh, built off of using uh, the seven arrows. So I want us to start with this question. When did you learn to read? Now, I think that our immediate response is to think of a time in our lives when we first started to read. I mean, three, if your parents splurge for the thing they used to sell on infomercials late at night about helping your three year old to read, or four, or five, or six, or maybe you're so old like me that you can't even really remember when you started to read. But we come to this idea of a specific point in time. But I don't think that's actually a good way to look at it. Uh, A while back, I was at a conference and the speaker asked that question, when did you learn to read? So I tried to think back into the recesses of my mind and figure it out, but his point was, shouldn't you still be learning to read? And so I hope that over our time today... In Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 38, and those who know how much text we had to cover have probably been you know, laying bets in Vegas on an over-under of how long that'll take, but when did you learn to read? And maybe that we can learn to read a little better today than we were able when we started out this morning. Well, Luke, thankfully, as we sort of do two things this morning, start our Advent series and start a series over a long period of time in the Gospel of Luke, thankfully Luke tells us a bit about his purpose of writing in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So he's actually giving us a bit of a guide, a key, for how to learn to read his book, which is always, frankly, helpful, right? So let's look and see what Luke has to say in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So, look at what he says there in verse 1. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So it also seemed good to me Since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. So that you would know the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. So let's look and see what he has to say to us here at the beginning. Back in verse 1, notice what he says. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Now, there's, frankly, a ton of rabbit holes that we could go down in talking about the the ways the Gospels were compiled, the various uh, theories as it relates to how Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, interrelate together. But the thing that I want us to focus on is what he says right there. What has been fulfilled among us. So notice what he's getting at right from the get go. He's writing from a perspective after these events, maybe 30, 40 years after they took place. He's looking back on what's taken place and he's focusing on not just what happened in the past. But he's trying to get them to look and put their eyes on how the events that he's going to describe in the course of these next 24 chapters have changed the entirety of the world. Have changed the trajectory of where the world was headed, where the world was going, and what the end was going to be. He is describing the most significant, most important story that has ever been told. And it's particularly an important story for those us. It's written in the context of a community like ours. He's writing to a group of people who have staked their lives on what is contained in this text. And he wants them to know, as we get in verse 4, the certainty of it. Let's think for just a second about how he conveys that. Look at what he says there in verse 2. He starts with talking about these original eyewitnesses and servants of the word. They handed them down to us. So so even though this is 40 years later, 30 years later, and, and maybe some of those people have died, this material has been faithfully, carefully passed along over the years. It can be trusted. You see, people of the ancient Near Eastern world were not the fools that maybe folks in the Enlightenment wanted to make them out to be, they knew the difference between fact and fiction. They were not idiots. In fact, they were quite brilliant. They knew what was truth and what was a lie, and they were not going to follow after a lie. And so he lays down this foundation. This material is going to be maybe hard to believe. There are going to be some things that break the laws of nature that are going to happen in the course of this book, the laws of nature that the great thinkers of your age are trying to piece together and put together with varying degrees of success. These are things that have been handed down faithfully, carefully by these eyewitnesses who are servants of the word. And then he explains there in verse 3, so it also seemed good to me. This is uh, these kind of prologues are, are, are somewhat common in Greco Roman writing. And a lot of times, when you get to this point, a couple of things are going to happen. You're going you're to talk about what prompted you, it seemed good to him. And, and in the course of Luke and Acts, which you really have to see them together, you can't have one without the other, really. This is oftentimes going to be used to describe the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So he might even be implying here that what he's writing is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That what he's writing here is of significance even beyond his own work. That that there's this reality of a divine and human thing going on here that we can't fully explain. So it seemed good to me. And then since he says there in the previous part that other people have written narratives... This is usually in the Greco-Roman world where you talk a little bit trash about how bad the other ones were and how great yours is going to be. He doesn't do that here because the other ones were just as great as his. So he says there how he's investigated everything from the very first to write to you. And then he says, in an orderly sequence, we're going to talk about that in just a minute, most honorable Theophilus. So he's writing this to a person of, of prestige, someone who has standing, in the Roman society, someone who has wealth, maybe the, the patron who is backing the writing and the sending out of this material. But then notice the last thing. So that you, this is his purpose. So every story that we read in the Gospel of Luke, forever how long it takes us to get to the end of this journey, chapter 24, every story that we read. We have to think about this question. It's lying there in the background. It's waiting for us to to grapple with and ponder and think through. So how is it, as Luke describes these great truths about Jesus, that, that he's God, that he's Lord, that he is king, how is he shaping the sequencing of the stories, the ordering of the stories, the logic of what he's saying to give certainty about these things that he's asserting about Jesus so that These folks, Theophilus and all the others that are around him and all the others in the generations that would follow read this, can get up out of their seats after gathering with God's people and go into a world with certainty and proclaim as witnesses that Jesus is the king of the world. Well, he starts, just like he says, at the very beginning. So he's giving us an accurate account of the things that have been fulfilled among us now notice also by the way that this us shows that the story isn't over the story has only just begun at the beginning of the book of Acts, he says this in the, the secondary start. Like, you know, uh, when you have your favorite episodic television show that, that has a cliffhanger from week to week. My, my favorite is, shows a bit of my age was, was 24. Like every week at the beginning of 24, you would have Kiefer Sutherland saying, previously on 24. Well, at the beginning of Luke one, or Acts 1, he's going to do the same thing. In the first book, in case you forgot, this is what I wrote. Listen to what he says. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. You see, Jesus is. And in the gospel, he begins to do and to teach And in the book of Acts, we see that Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. And even today, more than 2,000 years later, he's still doing and teaching us. So what can we learn about the beginnings, even before he was born, to show that he is here? And that is a bit of a tension, isn't it, if you think about it? As we look at chapter 1, verse 5, through uh, chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus has not yet been born. But John's describing it as though he's already there. We're going to find, or Luke's describing it that way. Sorry, there are names here. John is going to be talked about too. Luke is describing these things as already having been accomplished. And maybe we'll figure out why that is by the time we get to the end of our journey this morning. So, Jesus is, not Jesus was. Keep that in mind as we move forward. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. Notice what he says. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. So far, so good, right? But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive. And both of them were well along in years. And just as somebody who had a birthday this week, it's getting closer to a really significant birthday. Luke talks a lot about being old in this passage. I don't particularly like that. All right, so notice how it goes on. Verse 8. When his division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot. And by the way, when you read the Gospel of Luke, look for it happened. That pretty much is always telling you that God's doing this. It happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. So this is the one time in his life. He's an old man. We're going to find this out. He's an old man. He's... They're in their yearly rotation to get to serve in the temple. He's not in the elite of the elite of the priests who are in charge. He's a nobody from nowhere. And his group gets to go their time of year, and he's chosen by lot, chosen by God, to be the one that gets to offer the incense, the prayers of the people, their hope. Their hope-filled prayers for God to enter into the sanctuary, to return to his people, to do a great work in their midst. There is hope in this prayer. And it would be the only time in his life that this would happen. Once, you're, once you get to go into the holy place, just outside the Holy of Holies, you're checked off the list. You never get to go back. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Now, I wonder if this is a prayer for a child or a prayer for God to show himself and to redeem his people or both because he's going to get Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he is still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So Zechariah responds. How can I know this? And then notice what he says. For I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. I'm old She's old. How can I know this is going to happen? The angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news, this gospel, this announcement of the arrival of the king. Now, here's the thing. Is he describing the arrival of the king? No, he's describing the arrival of the one who's going to prepare the way for the arrival of the king. But the power of the prophetic word is such that when this word from God is spoken, it is as good as done. Because the God who spoke the entire cosmos into existence is speaking this into reality. That God is going to deliver his people. The king is coming. The good news that God reigns is going to be brought to reality in the world through in small measure, the work of this child that's about to be born. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place. Because you do not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. Like, it's as good as done, but it's going to be fulfilled in the future, in history, but it's as good as accomplished. So you didn't listen, so you're not going to speak. Which, frankly, if he talked about his wife the way that it seems that he does to the angel, this is probably for the good of the kingdom. Okay. So, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. Now think about that for a second. That Zechariah has been, and notice, it doesn't seem very long, does it? Like, I wonder if there's something even being conveyed in that little thing. Like, that they're shocked that he would stay there in this place, in the the holy place, that he would stay there so long offering prayers, but yet he's there, and they're concerned. When he did come out, he could not speak to them. The sign is you're quiet. And in being quiet, You're going to speak more than you could ever say. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. That seems a bit strange. But remember, she's old. It it reminds me honestly of my grandmother. My mom is 16 years younger than her closest sibling, all of whom have passed away at this point. But when my grandmother was pregnant with my mom, two of her daughters were expecting children. Suffice it to say, she was a bit embarrassed. And she hid the fact that she was having my mom for as long as she could. This is kind of close to home. But it seems a bit weird because of what we're going to see next. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace from among the people. So let's think about how this is set up. Let's, Think about what's said here about Zechariah and Elizabeth. Notice how they're described by Luke as being righteous and blameless. Like these are the cream of the crop. These are the people you would think that based upon what they do, God is going to bless them. They are, they are the keepers of the law. Like if you were going to, to get in some kind of quid pro quo relationship with God, like if I do this, you got to do this, you would think that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have children. I mean, you can almost imagine as you think about the words of what she said there, that the disgrace among the people has been taken away. Like you can imagine that this is something she's pondered and and been pained about for years and years and years how all these other people around her could be having children and and how i'm doing the right things and maybe they're not and and all of these sinful thoughts that can come into our minds as we ponder and we and we go through times of pain she has endured this thoughtfully and carefully and she can be described not as someone who is bitter, but as someone who is righteous and blameless as it pertains to the ways of the Lord, but they're childless. But if we put our thinking caps on, and we're not going to go down the rabbit hole of this. If you know the story of the scripture, we know something Big is about to happen. Think about Hannah who prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give her a child and she dedicated that child wholly and completely over to the Lord and when God finally gave her the child her prayer was heard she did exactly what she said he would do. What she said she would do. And this child became a prophet in Israel. Or you think back further along in the patriarchs with, with Jacob and, and Rachel. And how God saw that Leah was hated and he blessed her and gave her children and, and how the story takes some awful twists and turns as God accomplishes his purpose. But finally, at the end, she has two children, one of which would be the deliverer of God's people as they come down into Egypt. But the big story, the biggest of all, was Father Abraham and Sarah. Think about how similarly this looks to their story, Like that God says that through you all the families of the earth will be blessed, and he calls them when he's about 75 and she's 65, I think it's fair to say, generally speaking past the giving birth years she's not able to conceive either and he says there's going to be a baby but then years go by and there's no baby and years go by and there's no baby and then eventually God intervenes and comes down in Genesis 15 this is now like 15 years into the story he's like this is gonna happen the child This Eliezer of Damascus is not going to be your heir. I'm going to give you a child from your very own body. And God comes down and he shows this to him. He believes in the promise of God. It's credited to him as righteousness. And then 10 more years pass. And some really dumb decisions as his faith wavered in the middle. 100 years old. Paul, not in a very nice way, describes him as good as dead. She's 90. So when we hear righteous, blameless, childless, there's something big about to happen. And the angel says, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be something else. So the big problem is going to be solved. In an amazing, unbelievable miraculous way the big problem of Zechariah and Elizabeth of not having a child is going to be solved. But, how does he respond? Like we would respond. How can I know this? I mean, and and, and notice, this is just sad. I'm an old man. Like, how can we get this done? This is not gonna happen. I'm old and she's well along in years. Like, This is not supposed to happen. But isn't that kind of the point? This is a miraculous intervention of God. This child, look at what's said about him. He will be great in the presence of the Lord. We're going to go through these quickly. He will be great in the presence of the Lord. He will never drink beer or wine. This should cause us to go back and think of Samson, maybe the greatest uh, potential judge, and the biggest failure. But this story ain't going to turn out like that. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. This is a sign of the arrival of God's kingdom. The giving of the Spirit. He will turn many, of, many children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him. If you want to go down a rabbit hole. Go and look at what the antecedent to him is. And actually who the him is referring to. The him is referring In the text, the Lord God, but he's talking about Jesus. Even here, we're learning something significant about the identity of this one who is going to come. He will come before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is the fulfillment of scripture like in Malachi. He's going to prepare the way like in Isaiah. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And he will turn the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous. This this is a long list. This is like eight or nine things. This is the ninth one. He will make ready a people prepared for the arrival of the coming of God. Like this is an awesome list. Like anybody would be more than excited to have these nine... frankly, have one of these things said about their kid. But these nine things, this is awesome. But that's not the end of the story. Look at what Jesus says. I didn't say this, Jesus did. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. So go look in your Bibles, look at the whole Old Testament, go look at it all. Jesus says, not me, Jesus says, nobody greater than John. Not a one. Not a single, solitary one. All right. So now we get to the next vignette of the three. In the next, we are confronted with a young girl on the opposite end of the spectrum, frankly, from Zechariah and Elizabeth. They were as good as dead, and her life has not really even started. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. Notice... Luke tells us about Gabriel here, not in the midst of the story, because she frankly doesn't even care. A bit of a different posture than Zechariah. To a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. You think he's trying to emphasize something. She's a virgin, okay? And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement. Like, what? The Lord is with me? Wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So notice how it goes on from here. Now listen. Listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now, listen. Folks in the first century knew where babies come from. And what have we already been told? She's a virgin. Twice. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Okay? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel. Now notice what she doesn't ask. How can I know this? That's not what she asks. How can this be? Because Mary knows where babies come from too. How can this be? since I've not had sexual relations with a man. She's not saying it's impossible. She's not saying I need a sign. She's just like, I don't know how you're going to do this. The angel replied to her. And frankly, after the angel says this, I don't know that she's going to even know any anymore about how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then notice this. The grace of this. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Like we had no idea that they were even related. You're on the opposite ends of the story of life. Even she has conceived a son. Now, five months, she's hidden herself. There's no emails, no text messages, no nothing. Nobody knows. But Mary knows. Because the angel tells her, you're not alone in this. And these two kids are connected. And notice, she who was called childless, The one who was living out the curse of the covenant that when you rebel, you will not have the blessings of the children. The one who was barren now carries a child. God's kingdom is coming. You're not alone in this. Her conception is a miracle yours is beyond understanding because it's not just that she was a virgin before she conceived the child she was a virgin after she conceived the child that's That's happened one time there's nothing like this ever before but notice what she says 13, 14, 15 year old girl see I am the Lord's servant the servant of the Lord who will give birth to the servant of Yahweh who will die in the place of his people may it happen to me as you've said then the angel left her so notice these four things that are said about Jesus. He's going to be great. He is the great one. He's the son of the most high. He's the one who is going to bring to bear in the world the eternal Kingdom, Like Brandon read this morning from Isaiah 9, when the people who walk in darkness see the great light, when that great light shines, he's going to be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince who brings peace and of the increase of his government, of his peace, there will be no end and he will reign forever. Which is just going back to 2 Samuel 7 when God made similar promises to David that one from out of your family line will reign forever. And let's just be honest, there is no way that can be talking only about Solomon. Because what's going to happen to Solomon's kingdom? It's going to fall. It's going to be divided right after he dies. The Davidic line will end when the kingdoms fall. But that doesn't end God's purposes. Because just as surely as the prophet said in 2 Samuel 7 that there would be one from David's family who will reign over the house of Jacob forever, it was true, it was solidly true. On that day, just as much as it was on the day that the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom and just as much as it was on the day that the Babylonians destroyed the southern kingdom and just as much as it was when Isaiah says that this king will come, the tree that's been chopped down will have a shoot that comes out of it and now you're going to see it. It was sure. The prophetic word is always sure. That's why we can know that Jesus is here even before he's born, because God is never going to be stopped in accomplishing His purposes. And then, lastly, the Holy One, the Son of God. But listen to this. Look at the logical way that John is that Luke has constructed this. You see, all he's doing here is to compare these two stories. There is a purpose in his writing John's great but he's nothing in comparison to Jesus in fact John would have no place in this story if not for his connection to the one who is here so let's think about that for a second the comparison the central comparison John will be great in the presence of the Lord. But Jesus is simply great. Any greatness that John has comes from the fact that he is closely, intimately connected with the one who is great who has greatness in and of himself because he is God the Son. He is the Lord. He is the King. He is the Eternal One who has come into this earth to establish an eternal kingdom in a very surprising way. Because this Eternal King is going to establish his reign and his rule that will know no end by dying in the place of of sinners. Luke is going to go out of his way at the end of the story to say to show us that that this man who died on the cross was innocent of every single thing that was claimed about him. He was innocent. The innocent one has died there so that the guilty ones to his right and his left can go free. And the one who says, as you enter into your kingdom, think about how odd that is. The very last place in the world you would think that a king would be coming into his kingdom is on a cross. He's about to die. And the guy looks and says, you're the king. God is here. Because you're here. And the lesson that we can learn from this is that any greatness that any of us have is only going to be achieved, is only going to be known because of our connection to the one who truly is great. We can gain all that the world offers, but we will never be known as great in the eyes of the one who matters unless that greatness is defined by living in the presence of the true one, the king who is here, Jesus the Lord. But notice how it goes on. John was, but Jesus is. John was great in the presence of the Lord. John would turn the hearts of many to uh, children of Israel to the Lord. John would do all of these great things. He would preach in the wilderness. He was going to do awesome things, preparing the way of Yahweh, returning to his people. But John was, because he ends. His life is cut short. But Jesus said, Because when he died, he didn't stay dead. So we can gather this month as we think about the coming of the Christ child. As we build anticipation throughout Advent. We need to do that. But we also need to live in the tension of the fact that Jesus is. God the Son is in the presence of the Spirit That dwells in his people. He is here today. He is in the midst of us now. Jesus is here. And we need to listen to what he's teaching. We need to do what he's empowering us to do. In the right now. Because there are going to be a lot of leaders great people that are mentioned in Luke and then in Acts in fact in the first 3 chapters he's going to Luke is going to tie the birth of Jesus to Herod some people called him great he's dead in the days of Caesar Augustus who was called by his subjects as one who was divine on the earth. He was too. And then Tiberius, chapter 3, he was a Caesar too, king of the world, supposedly. Yeah, you can say Caesar was as well. But Jesus is. He is and he always will be. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is God most high. Jesus is. And he is here. And he is never leaving his people. He is here. And he promised as he ascended to the Father to sit at the right hand of God that he will never leave or forsake his people. And he's here right now in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our joy, to make himself great in those moments so that we can know what it is to walk and live in the presence of the King and to know the joy that he brings even when it seems like the world has fallen down around Because that's clearly where Elizabeth was. But she's been brought out the other side. And maybe that deliverance in our lives won't be something quite so stark as an angel appearing and saying, even though you're old, you're going to have a kid. But it's no less powerful and it's no less significant if we see it and hear it And receive it as the grace that it is. But notice something here about Luke 7, 28. Remember the first part? There's no one greater than John that's ever lived, that's been born of a woman. That basically is everybody, right? He's the greatest of them all. But the rest of the story is this. But the least. The least. So you might think really lowly of yourself. But you can't get lower than the least. The least in the kingdom of God. The least of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, the Messiah, are greater than he. Because we've seen the hope realized. We know how the story ends. John never got to see that. But those of us who have placed faith in Jesus have seen and know that Jesus died on the cross, that God raised him to life again, and he reigns and rules from on high. The least in the kingdom is greater than he. So there's nothing that should hold us back from going in faith to continue what Jesus began to do and to teach. Because he wasn't just here 2,000 years ago. He's here today. And he's doing and he's teaching us. Will we listen in faith like Mary? Or will we be a little more slow on the uptake like Zechariah? But in the end, whether the hard path or the easy... He's working to accomplish his purposes through us and in us because he's here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would be life and truth to us today. That if we're in agony this morning about sin and sadness and sorrow, that we will know that you are here. You're here to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We know that, that the hard times, the trials, the persecutions, those are meant to produce character and endurance and hope. Because in those times we are, well, we have everything taken away except for the fact that Jesus is and that Jesus is here. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would give us rest in you that you would give us hope in you, that we would in this time of response be brought anew and again into your presence so that we can know your presence, so that we can be empowered by your Spirit's work, that you would continue to do and you would continue to teach and you would continue to shape obedience in us because you are here. And help us to know that when the accuser says, You are alone, no one cares, no one loves, you're nothing. That Jesus is here. And the accuser is still a liar. And the least in the kingdom of God is greater even than John. And so let us celebrate for the glory of King Jesus and the glory of the triune God. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.